You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. What did I really want to do out here? I wanted, of course, to be fixed, to transform into a woman ready to take on the rest of her life, to launch my boat as a means of launching myself into a better future. But Barnes had warned me those expectations were naive and impatient. It was more realistic to solidify the goodbyes. I wanted, like Barnes's school kids, to individuate, in my case, away from my moribund, fossilized identity in a couple. To do that, I wanted to access my bravery. I wanted to transmute my fear into something else, something like what I had glimpsed paddling through disaster falls and split mountain. Momentum, power, agency. I wanted to learn how to take care of myself and learn how to be alone. I wanted to cultivate beauty and experience awe. I wanted finally to say goodbye to my marriage. Florence Williams is the author of Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Her new book is Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Thank you for joining me, Florence. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. You know, I think it's really important um, to talk about your previous book, The Nature Fix, a bit here in okay. the introduction, because it plays two very different parts in this book. On one hand, you use a lot of what you learned in that book to apply to fixing the problem in this book, which is heartbreak. But also, it, it points to a, a more something else that happened, I think, maybe when you wrote that book or even before, which is... In the nature fix, you, you're, you ask yourself the question, well, the common sense is nature makes us happier. And you said, well, why don't I look for the science and see what the science is behind that assumption and if, if there is any real science. And, and so you go out and you look at the world and you see find all the science behind this. And I think that this um, indicates it's a really unique perspective on, on life. It's it's a really interesting way for you to walk around the world w- with science and make that, you know, I'll go talk to the experts and find out. <laughs> talk about um, that approach to, to life. Well, well, you're right. In some, in some ways, I'm looking at something really obvious, <laughs> you know, that nature <laughs> makes us feel better. Uh, and then trying to find out kind of what the science has to say about why that's happening. And in this book, I'm saying heartbreak hurts and heartbreak makes us feel physically lousy and trying to figure out why that is. And I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm not just like, OK, with accepting the obvious <laughs> and leaving it at that. Um, I guess it's because I'm a science journalist and I have a sort of curious mind for the science. Um, and I. I think just having done that, having taken that approach, I knew that I could find some comfort in it, I guess, sort of cognitively <laughs> as a place to retreat, you know, from my pain. If I could put on my journalism hat and, you know, sort of head out to go reporting and researching, uh, it gave me something to do. <laughs> it got me got me up in the morning. It got me sort of moving a little bit through the pain of this heartbreak to try to answer some questions about it. You know, um, it, it also, uh, a little bit of a spoiler here, it does lead you, it's, it's an example of what you call at the end of heartbreak, openness. I mean, it's right. an organizing form for openness. It says, okay, I'm going to just assume that I can learn something from the world around me. And, and I think that that's a, a really, it's a good attitude. It's very helpful. Yeah. I, and, and you're right. I mean, I, I think it's a strategy in a way to resilience. Mm-hmm. And I learned that by talking to one of the psychologists 
early on in the book at the University of Utah, Paula Williams. And she said, you know, the people who seem to sort of sail through life's tragedies um, are the ones who have an open mind, the ones who are open to experience, open to curiosity, especially open to beauty and open to awe. And so I grasped onto that sort of desperately (laughs) as a roadmap for how to spend the next couple of years of my life. And what was wildly encouraging about what she told me is that openness is a personality trait that you can actually change. You can learn to become a more open person. And so I think that also was very motivating for me in, in you know having the experiences that I had while writing this book. I was trying to say yes to a lot of things that I felt like had some science behind them. Um, I wanted to I wanted to indulge the curiosity as a way to, I think, further develop, you know, that trait in myself. You know, um, one of the things I like about this book is the way it's written. You, It's almost like a novel in many ways. Um, it could be a novel, and uh, I guess it would have to be, a, if it was a novel, it would be fiction, so it would be a science fiction novel. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> That that said, I'd like you to talk about um, going through these experiences that you describe as one thing, but writing them down and mixing, you do a great job of mixing the personal and the scientific. And that's a really tough call. I mean, this seems like something that would be very tough. You know, it would be hard to write that the actual writing process of putting the words down would be very difficult. I think you're right. I really had to tread a fine line there because uh, I didn't want the book to be too weak on the science and I didn't want it to be too weak on the sort of memoir. Um, the risk was that it wouldn't be memoir enough or it wouldn't be science enough. And so um, it, it was a balancing act. And, and, and what I, so what, the way I went about it was I, I said, okay, I'm only going to write about myself to the extent that there's some science that justifies kind of the personal story. Um, and I'm going to find the science that also speaks to the personal experience. So there was a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book because it, it didn't kind of fall into that pretty tight frame. You know, um, this kind of balance is it's really very effective i i must say that i approach the book with a little bit of you know cautious thinking well i mean writing about some heartbreak your particularly your own you know this is uh uh you know a con- conducting an experiment on yourself as a, and it's something yeah. you know you were actually in fact you were conducting your, an experiment on yourself as a science, not a scientist, but as a science journalist. Um, so talk about how that aspect of the of what you intended to do affected what you did. How did your personal um, approach and the fact that you wanted to commit this to a book uh, affect your approach to science? Well, it was a natural strategy for me because this is my third book. And by now, I've really done this with all of my other books where I've kind of used myself and my body as a little bit of a proxy for sort of other people, you know, either experiencing nature, for example. Um, you know, I wore and for the Nature Fix book, I wore a portable EEG cap, for example, while I wandered through different environments, you know, city parks, city streets, wilderness areas, um, you know, so, so you sort of putting these kinds of machines and instruments on myself is just a con- kind of conversational way, I think, you know, to make this relevant for everyone else. And I did it in my first book, too, where I uh, tested my own breast milk for industrial contaminants, um, you know, that, that, um, are getting into all of our bodies. Right. So it's just a way to do it. So with the heartbreak book, you know, what, what was harder was that it was more personal. You know, I really had to sort of, I think, go in, you know, with talking about my pain, talking about betrayal, um, talking about, you know, grief, um, but the impulse was really the same. And so I had to find, I was, I was motivated, like in my other books, to find experiments that I could do on myself. 
Uh, and that included, you know, analyzing my own blood um, for transcription factors associated with loneliness, um, which I thought was, you know, kind of a new way of looking at the immune system and a, an interesting concept in and of itself. Very few people have had the access to have their um, transcription factors analyzed within that context, but um, um, I was able to do that in a lab at UCLA. And then, you know, I I did another experiment where I looked at pictures of my ex while receiving electrical shocks. Uh, talk, and, that was very interesting. <laughs> so talk about the, the setup and, and the, the thought behind that experiment. Yeah, so in that one, um, we were, we were measuring my galvanic skin response, which is a stress measure, um, while I was receiving these shocks <laughs> and looking at pictures um, of my ex, also looking at pictures of my sort of social support figure, uh, and that was my dad, and then also looking at pictures of a stranger, you know, just randomly from the internet. And um, we measured how much fear I associated with the shocks as I was looking at those three different men. Um, and then how quickly I could learn to dissociate fear from the pictures um, when the shocks stopped. And I was able to unlearn, you know, the sort of stress response when more quickly when I was looking at pictures of the stranger <laughs> and when I was looking at pictures of my father than when I was looking at pictures of my ex. So um, this was um, sort of the... Um, um, Naomi Eisenberger lab at UCLA. She's done you know a fair amount of this sort of stuff, looking at the power of social support figures, you know, to, to help us feel safer, you know, as we move through life. But also, um, you know, looking at how scared we are of of people um, who may have harmed us, and so you know, just emotionally. So 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 that was interesting because this was like I think over a year after the marriage ended. And I was still showing this, you know, sort of threat-based nervous system response um, to my ex. Show and, and and what's interesting about that too is it, it, it sort of lends credence to the argument that you shouldn't follow your ex on social media. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't interact with them more than you need to. Um, you know, maybe don't engage so much if what you're wanting to do is get over this person and um, make your nervous system feel more comfortable moving through the world. You, you know, one thing that uh, I thought was really interesting was, you know, the in the backdrop of this book is this whole idea of stress in modern life. Um, the, the human response to, to stress developed on the savannah where you had to pay attention lest something jump on you and kill you or you break a leg and starve. Uh, so stress was very important. It had to, you know, like get you ready, physically ready to jump over whatever it is, run fast, and it pumps a bunch of chemicals into your bloodstream. And I love that you quoted uh, Kurt Vonnegut because he forever changed my picture of people when he described people as like walking chemical reactions, <laughs> which, which is, I think, useful. It's what we it, are. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is what we are. And, and um, this is particularly important when it comes to stress, because what has happened in modern life is that everything around us pumps us full of those stress chemicals, which is not good for us. <laughs> and so the, the way I really see that is, you know, it's not like things were easier or less stressful, you know, back in the Pleistocene. But I think what was different is that we had these naturally built in ways to recover from the stress. So, you know, we had our kin groups and we would sit by the fire at the end of the night and sing songs and dance and look at the Milky Way and we would watch the sunset and we would hear the birds chirp in the morning. You know, having written the Nature Fix book, I really appreciate how, you know, living in these um, you know, pleasant and healthful natural environments really regulate our stress response. And in modern life, we have the stresses, but we don't have the ways to recover. Well, well too, when you're on the savanna and you 
need to run away. You actually run away. And, and when you're right. like in a boardroom and somebody says something really terrible and just embarrasses the heck out of you and you realize you just made an awful, perhaps career-ending mistake, you can't just walk the stress off. I run away. You have to sit there and go, mm-hmm, and you have to act <laughs> like a normal human being when you want to run screaming into the parking lot. Which, yeah, then you have to relive it like through social media, right? Forever and ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now we... We've achieved eternal life, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, uh, not what we expected. Um, you know, so I, I think one of the things that I really liked was that um, you, you talk a lot about um, loneliness, too, in this book. And, and that's, yeah. of course, the first uh, effect of, of being rejected is that, you know, you're you are immediately alone. So talk right. about uh, seeking, you know, cures for loneliness and, and loneliness in the context of being uh, divorced, which is not the same as necessarily being alone. Yeah, I mean, when we've been rejected in love, you know, we've lost our primary attachment partner. And so our body and our nervous systems, you know, register that as kind of a, an abandonment. You know, almost like a physical abandonment that we are moving through the jungle now by ourselves. Uh, and that's terrifying. You know, as humans, we're not supposed to be alone in the jungle. We're not supposed to feel alone. There's safety in numbers. Um, and, and that's why lonely people put out so many more um, stress hormones, you know, that don't get easily resolved. Um, we, we pump out, for example, more norepinephrine and that sends signals um, to all kinds of organs and cells in our bodies. And if we feel lonely over decades, over or at least over years, um, our bodies are putting out more inflammation in response to that norepinephrine, in response to that feeling kind of abandoned and threatened. Uh, and so in turn, that leads to chronic diseases. We know that lonely people have a 23% increased risk of early death increased risk of dementia, increased risk of metastatic cancer, increased risk of diabetes, I mean, it goes on and on. Um, and it's only recently that that geneticists have been able to sort of look at those transcription factors to see what's actually changing in the white blood cells, which factors are upregulating and downregulating, um, resulting in that inflammation. So I thought that was super interesting, hadn't really been talked about very much and, and not in the context of, of heartbreak necessarily. You know, it's also really interesting uh, the statistics you gather about divorced, separated versus married and happy or something. I mean, it, who, there's uh, one fellow, Upton Uchin. Uchino. Uchino. Yeah. Robert uh, Uchino, University of Utah. <laughs> yeah. Who you have a, a memorable meeting with and walk away fairly depressed. I think one is, yeah. it, it's fairly interesting in this book that how you do a great job of conveying like your own raw emotions, but not weighing us down with them. You know, it's that openness, even though you've learned something that is fairly you know, significantly terrifying and not good news. You managed to convey it to the reader well. So talk about experiencing just this flood of information from Uchino and then and then processing it yourself and then processing it in words for the readers to turn it into yeah, well, a story. What what was really helpful about that was that literally right after I got all this bad news from Uchino, I went across the hall <laughs> and talked to someone who immediately cheered me up. So that's it. I think that helped with the book. But yeah, I mean, he he just um, he gave me this litany of bummer data and bummer trivia about how unhealthy it is to be divorced. You know, I mean, we've long known, I guess, that that being in a good marriage is really healthy um, in, for, for, for you. It's it's people live longer. Um, they recover more easily from illness. They they even feel less pain when they do have some kind of physical pain. Um, and we know that um, 
people who are divorced are going to be on, you know, worse off than people who are married. But we, what's also weird is that it seems like people who are divorced are actually worse off than people who have never been married. So, you know, if you're single and you're sort of like relatively happily single, you know how to navigate the world as a single person, um, your health outcomes look better than if you've been divorced. Uh, especially if you if you're divorced and you didn't want to be divorced, <laughs> so if you perceive it, you know, as as a kind of big kind of mortal wound um, to your to your soul and your self concept, uh, definitely puts the lie to the better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I think that that statement can be really challenged. <laughs> <laughs> with Except science. that the benefits of love are also really great, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you can love again, uh, then then you'll then you'll be okay. I mean, it it looks like the physical health, you know, detriments uh, only last about four years for most of us after divorce. Um, then we kind of return to baseline. But fifteen percent of people don't get better. They don't really recover from heartbreak and from the stresses of it. Uh, and certainly, um, we know that, you know, women end up often, um, with, with much more financial insecurity after divorce that in itself leads to poor health outcomes. If women can't afford good health insurance, um, or healthful, you know, places to live and so on. Um, whereas men actually also are pretty badly off after divorce because, they adopt all these habits that aren't so healthy you know, they may be um, drinking more, smoking more, not exercising. No one's there to sort of harangue them into going to the doctor. Um, their social lives, you know, may, may be much weaker. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a grim story, unfortunately, for a while anyway. And, and, you know, a lot of men do remarry and they do it in greater numbers than the women do. So then they end up healthier and richer, which doesn't seem quite fair. Definitely not. You know, I really, uh, when I opened the book up and started reading, it would start like in the, in media rest. You're in the middle of a river adventure that you plan for yourself and it's not going well. And, And I really like that beginning because it, sets the tone for this book and when you come back to that river adventure um we learn a lot more about you and about the river and so talk about uh just constructing the book in that way because that's a very novelistic that's a a form that's often used in, in fiction and in movies really to start with somebody in trouble and then go back and well two months ago things you know are a year ago, things were really in <laughs> Right. I, you know, I struggled with that structure a little bit because it is so, um, it's so, you know, widely used. <laughs> um, and not just in fiction, but, you know, in books like Cheryl Strayed's Wild, mm-hmm. um, the first scene in that book is um, she, she's miserable on this trail, on the Pacific Crest Trail. She's been hiking for a long time. Um, and she literally, um, loses her hiking boot over the cliff. (laughs) And then the reader sort of left there wondering, like, how is she going to get out of this pickle? And then there's backstory of how she got there. Um, So, you know, I think it's in some ways, it's a really kind of expected story structure. And I resisted it at first, because I was like, Oh, everyone does that. I really don't want to do that. Um, But then I ended up doing it because I felt like it would give the reader a sort of quick introduction to the tone that I was going to take in the book, which was funny, um, but also, uh, you know, sort of there was some peril here and there was some some suspense. um, And I didn't want to just jump into backstory without sort of preparing the reader a little bit for sort of who I was as a person writing this book and looking back. You know, you do a a lot of traveling in this book and then going to different people and you must have conducted hundreds, I think, of interviews. Uh, Talk about when you interview somebody, do you tape it and then transcribe it or do you have it transcribed? And and talk about like gathering that information and collating it and turning 
like, you know, an audio tape into a great scene in a book where you're having a conversation with somebody and we're really right there with you and the person you're talking to, the scientist. And there are really great characters, too. That, I mean, that really helps the book because we, we love, love all these people we meet, most especially so, you. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm so glad you're asking me about audio because I do have a lot of uh, thoughts about it. Uh, so, you know, for my for my previous two books, I ended up after the books came out making podcast projects um, based on those books. And I had to go back to the field, go back to those same people I interviewed for the books. Um, and, and actually, and because of that, the, the products that we made were sort of different. And these were Audible originals, made them with Audible. Um, they were sort of discrete projects, loosely based on the books themselves. So this time, from the very beginning, I took a pretty high quality tape recorder and just taped everything. Okay. And yeah. because at this point, I was already sort of, um, I was already interested in sound as a, as a storytelling technique and had learned more about making audio products. Uh, I also taped myself, like I did sort of an audio journal. I taped my friends. I taped conversations I had with my therapist. I just taped everything because I didn't know what I would do with it at the end. Um, and then, yes, I mean, I, I treated it just like any other kind of note-taking device. I, I would transcribe or have these tapes transcribed. Uh, I have very long transcript files that I would draw on as I was writing um, scenes and so on. Uh, but then I ended up with all this great tape, like a 200 audio files, you know, representing three years of research. And I thought about it a lot. I was like, well, do I want to make a podcast about this? Not really, because I feel like I've already sort of told the story in the book. What I really want to do with this tape is turn it into an enhanced audiobook. So that's what we did. And I approached Pushkin, um, which is, you know, one of the few audiobook companies out there that's, um, I think, really, um, you know, sort of pushing the envelope on on sound design in audiobooks. And we actually layered in those audio journals and we layered in the real voice of my therapist and we layered in my best friend. So so we made this kind of hybrid podcast slash audiobook. Um, that I'm so proud of. And I, I think it, it was, I'm just really, I feel really grateful that Pushkin was willing to let me do this with them. Well, this is, uh, I think, a great example of using your creativity as a means of recovery uh, in, in terms of like you were open to the idea uh, of the of the audio and you thought, well, I'm going to need this Anyway, I might as well slightly organize it, which I imagine you did. So talk about um, openness is in at the end of the day, one of the most important things that you can do for yourself if you're in this kind of pickle where you're divorced, you don't want to be, and you have to figure out a way to get back to being like a, a whole person again without right. the whole person you spent the last 30 or 40 years with. Right. Definitely not an easy task. Nobody would would assume it to be so. I found a lot of comfort in my identity as a journalist and a writer. Uh, I, have, I, you know, when you go through a relationship breakup like this, there's so much identity that gets um, really kicked <laughs> kicked down the alley. I mean, you know, you you've built up this life as a wife and as a mother, um, you know, as a person in a couple. And for me, that was 32 years, really my entire adult life, because I met him when I was 18 years old. Um, so it was a huge part of who I was. And and when that relationship kind of suddenly, you know, splintered, I, I was left with these other fragments of self, you know. And and for me, I just felt lucky that I, I did have a strong sense of myself as a writer and a journalist. And so I think it I just leaned really, really heavily into that. Um, it was comforting to me. Uh, I didn't know who I was in a lot of arenas, <laughs> but I did know who I was in that one. One of the major features of your relationship was that both you and your husband uh, did a lot of work, you know, enjoyed outdoors and going outdoors and, and running down rivers. So, and that as a, you had to regrow that as part of your your um, 
cure for yourself. So talk about um, taking what had been a joint part of your identity that you shared with your husband, but um, that was, and turning that into a soul part of your identity. But as you pointed out in the book, it was already coming apart. The, the parts were separating before you had separated. You would start out going down rivers together, and then later on you say, well, we'll go separately. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because I, I did do a lot of river running and sort of wilderness adventuring in my marriage, but I also did a lot in my childhood. So I, I grew up in New York City, but my parents were divorced. And my dad, every summer, would sort of throw me into this van and we'd put some canoes on top and we would drive out west and we would run these wilderness rivers. So I did that all through my teens. Um, and so after the divorce, it was like, OK, yes, this is something I do with my husband, but it's also a core part of who I am. And I want to reclaim it. I want to reclaim it as a part of myself, not just a part of my marriage. So that was part of the motivation, I think, in my wanting to sort of, you know, do these river trips. I did a big solo um you know, for this book and for my recovery, I did a, I spent 30 days on the Green River in Utah. Half of that was with friends and family and half of it was by myself because I, I felt like I wanted to, the metaphor was so irresistible. You know, I had to learn how to paddle my own boat now. I wasn't just going to be in my husband's boat. And um, so, yeah, I just felt like that's one place. I can try to regain my sense of self, regain some agency, um, you know, literally sort of paddle from one broken landscape into something different. I think one of the characters you do really well with in this book is your husband and, or your ex who um, he, he, you cut you don't name him and he's not a giant part of the narrative other than the inciting incident, so to speak. Right. But I think you do a good job of like letting us know as much as we need to, but no more. And that's in a sense, the, the real strength of this whole book is you put yourself in where it's really helpful and it creates that personal, you know, keeps you as the main character but you also know when to to step aside and when to uh, shut up. <laughs> right, well, well I, I mean, yeah, you know what? I'm thinking too. The more I think about it, the more this is really, in a sense, like a science fiction book. Because in science fiction books, one of the both the it can be either a pleasure or a problem with with a science fiction novel is when somebody has to explain, you know, the invented science concept. Well, Bob, right. we'll act, ask Dr. Fred and he'll tell us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there's a, quite a few of those kind of what in the science fiction world we call info dump parts, but they're super mm -hmm. fascinating. And they're like, you know, it's like you're walking down a canyon and there are buried, you know, jewels embedded in the canyon. Eventually you come up and the jewels help guide you in the, the right direction. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you said that about, you know, um, I'm putting in just the right amount of, of my ex uh, and my personal story. Um, that is important to me. And uh, I, I tried really hard to do that. Um, was there I felt a 700 like page version of this book? <laughs> there was to my friends. Uh. <laughs> my friends heard all of it. Uh, thank goodness for them. Um, and bless them for, for putting up with me. But um, yeah, I didn't need to put it in the book. Uh, you know, and part of it is I have children. You know, I have two teenagers. They're adults now. But, uh, you know, they don't need to, they, I, the world doesn't really need to know, like, all the details, right? It just needs to know sort of what I had lost and the sense of loss and the sense of betrayal, enough to kind of inform the science of, of why I felt lousy. <laughs> You know, the one concept that I think is really important to this book, important to your recovery and, and important to the things that you want to, the reader to take away is the idea of awe. I'm super interested in awe because it's often described as the flip side of horror. And, and I enjoy horror fiction as well. <laughs> yeah. But I think it, 
it's informed by awe and it also informs awe. So talk about the import of awe in this book and to you. And I think you had already tweaked to it earlier on in the nature fix, which is in a sense all about awe. Yeah, I was already super fascinated by the science of awe. And I wrote about it a little bit in the nature fix. Um, the idea that um, our human brains are um, in some ways really wired to um, experience, you know, very deep beauty. And that in fact, experiencing that for us may help our sense of community. Um, because we know from the studies that when we experience something really beautiful, like a whale jumping or a sun or sunset, um, it we actually feel like our egos shrink a little bit. We feel more connected, you know, to the world around us. We feel like our own problems aren't such a big deal. In fact, the science shows that when we see something really surprising and beautiful, you know, like like a whale jumping, the sort of internal soundtrack of our own brains ceases. It just stops because we want to take this information in that we sort of weren't expecting to see. And we're trying to understand what that was that we just saw. Um, so, so like literally our brains sort of stop for a minute, the, 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 at least the sort of self-concept part of our brains and the ego part of our brains. Uh, and that's really good for us. It's really good for our mental health. Um, it reminds us that, that there's something else out there in the world other than, other than our own problems. Um, so I was really interested in that. And then of course I had this conversation after the bummer trivia conversation with Bruccino. You know, I went across the hall, talked to Paula Williams, who said to me, yeah, we know that some people are really resilient and can sail through these kinds of tragedies in life. And those people are the ones, as I said, who are open. But specifically, there's a specific sort of subcategory of openness, and that's um, the ability to be blown away by beauty, the ability to experience awe. So if you're someone who has goosebumps, for example, you know, when you're listening to a symphony, um, that's a great trait in, as far as your, your potential resilience. Um, and so, you know, I just went deeper sort of down the awe rabbit hole, you know, personally, because I felt like I needed everything I could get that would help me out. But I was also just interested in the science of it. You know, one of the things that that's interesting is the direct effect of things that happen to you has on your body. And, yeah. and you talk uh, a bit about uh, Bessel van der Kolk's uh, book, the, the Body Keeps the Score, which, and you, in that book, he introduces something called EMDR, which you tried. So it's, it's really a, a pretty interesting thing. And it it's kind of, I love the way that you approached it because you approached it you approached science like a scientist as a journalist. So there's like layers uh, of perception in your writing, which is really, I think, apparent to the reader and fascinating to read and experience on a prose level, to read that kind of prose. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was really interested in his work because it addresses uh, sort of interventions for emotional trauma and even using the word trauma for heartbreak, I was kind of resistant to because it just seems like that word is kind of overused. And um, I, I didn't feel like, you know, what I had experienced compared to sort of the, the PTSD, you know, that I had been learning about. And, and, and um, you know, I was interviewing people who, uh, you know, had fought wars, you know, and were suicidal, you know, um, victims of sexual trauma. I mean, these, these seemed like whole different categories from just like, oh, you know, my husband dumped me. Um, but the more I learned about it, the more I was convinced that what I had gone through was a kind of trauma, because it is such a blow to your self concept. And it makes it harder to kind of, um, you know, to sort of function, actually, it can make it harder to function. So for a while, I, I felt like, that was what I needed. That was how I needed to frame it. And I needed to look at some interventions for dealing with that, um, including EMDR. Tell us what that stands for and just give us a little idea of what it's, what it is. It's eye movement recursive, yeah, something or other. Uh, yeah, it's eye movement desensitization 
something. What is the R? Do I have this written down? Um, what is the R? I can't remember what the R is. Um, but it's eye movement desensitization. Oh, and retraining, maybe? Maybe mm -hmm. it's retraining. Anyway, it's where you uh, typically, if you're working with a therapist one-on-one, -on -one, the therapist is is kind of asking you to remember some of your very, very painful uh, events while she is asking you to track her finger back and forth with your eyes. So you're doing this sort of bilateral movement as you are thinking of this very painful memory. Um, and who knows how the heck this works? I, I don't think we really understand it. But the idea is that by doing this movement of your brain, you know, you're forcing your brain a little bit out of the trauma space, you know, into something um, that's, you know, sensory. Um, and it helps decouple the the memories from the, um, from, let's see, it helps decouple the memories from the pain of the memories. So you're taking sort of some of the emotion out of the memory. And if you do it enough, sort of in a similar way um, to exposure therapy, uh, it, it seems to help. And it, But the, the difference is that you can do the exposure part for a lot less. <laughs> so rather than sort of remembering the painful thing over and over and over again to the point where you're desensitized, you just have to do this experience, you know, some several times for some moments, and and apparently you can get the same effect. Now it doesn't. Apparently, the science shows that it doesn't really work as well if you have childhood trauma, um, but it can work for adulthood trauma. One of the the people you talked to, another person you talked to, who who is very interesting and very upbeat, Dacher Keltner. I love Dacher. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about what 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 he what you learned from him. Dacker is a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, and he has become a specialist in positive emotions. Uh, and particularly, he's been really focused a lot on awe, among other things. Um, but he kind of helped put awe back on the map, I think, in terms of sort of modern psychological investigation um, with a paper he wrote with Jonathan Haidt about 20 years ago, um, talking about awe as, as a powerful emotion that has really been understudied. And we need to look at it again because of what it can do um, for altruism and social behavior um, and uh, as, a, as a counterweight to sort of uh, ruminative thinking and other things. And so... Dacker, I mean, he's, you know, he's Berkeley, right? He's, he, he loves Iggy Pop. He's, you know, countercultural in his own way. And, and he's become kind of a pal of mine. And when I told him about my divorce, you know, we were talking about, about ways to feel better. And I, and I just asked him, I was like, what do you think about psilocybin? You know, what do you think about psychedelics? Is this a way to experience awe? And can that you know, awe delivered, you know, on that, on, in that modality, can that be helpful to someone suffering from heartbreak? And he was like, yeah, girl, it can, you know, but just be careful, you know, be careful, find someone you trust, do it in a setting that feels safe, you know, and so on. Um, so I had never tried, tried psychedelics like that before. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess I kind of felt like I had his stamp of approval and it made me feel like, it was something worth trying. Your approach is so matter of fact and journalistic. It's it really feels authentic and smart and 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 you know, uncolored. I guess is is the the term I'd use. Seem very realistic. So, talk about your the therapist you found to do this with, and and a little bit about some of your experiences. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not really legal in a clinical setting yet. Um, when you're out of outside of the context of a you know government funded study, and so I had to find someone who works underground. Um, she's in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I interviewed actually several people, some of whom um, felt a little wishy or washier to me, but she felt pretty rigorous. So I you know I showed up at her house, and um, we we did a kind of you know a couple of intake sessions where we talked about what it was I wanted to experience, you know, through this psychedelic trip. Um, and I, I had very specific, you know, sort of objectives <laughs> being, being the control freak science journalist that I was. Um, 
And then I spent, you know, the next day it was like six hours of, of taking these substances and lying on her futon and wearing an eye mask and listening to music. And um, I was kind of in and out of, of a sense of, of ego, I guess. Sometimes I was aware of my surroundings and sometimes I wasn't. But one funny thing that happened that I wrote in the book is that I, I at some point, you know, sort of woke up enough to know that she was snoring next to me. And she, she was supposed to be my guide. She'd, she'd fall and sound asleep. But I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to be helping me through this. <laughs> um, yeah. So there were some moments of humor in there. I was I was happy to see that that uh, Brian Eno was uh, the uh, <laughs> on the li- on your playlist. Of course. There. So so talk about about the influence of music, which I think is interesting because music is so often dominated by the lyrical content that the poetry completely overshadows the power that just a couple of instrumental notes can convey a, just two simple tones against one another can convey a, an emotional mood that would take, you know, pages to describe it and still not be as accurate a, a, as the boom boom. Well, it's so amazing what happens when you're tripping on these substances, the psilocybin, um, you know, your brain is all mixed up in terms of how it's receiving sensory input. It's not making sense of it in the way that it normally does as you move through life. It's not taking the shortcuts that it normally does. It's not kind of making it cohesive. And so sound literally feels like it's separating. So like some notes are sort of on the ceiling and some notes are falling on your face. And, you know, some notes are this color or that color. And um, it becomes this really fascinating experience of sound where the components feel like they're separate, which of course they are. Um, and so we, in some ways we're seeing things as they really are. And in some ways we're seeing things in a completely um, unrecognizable way. So I, you know, the briny note is totally instrumental. It is very atmospheric. It's kind of perfect if you are having a vision which you have in these uh, in these uh, psychedelic experiences of you know literally sort of um, floating through space, and I was seeing molecules and I was seeing um, you know bead curtains and filaments of light <laughs> and these huge overview effects that are very common to people having psychedelic experiences where you feel like you are at a great distance you know from the sort of like little normal people of life. Now. Uh, before you went on your river trip, you, you had uh, an acquaintance take a bunch of blood samples and analyze, you know, your the neurotransmitters to see where you were in the world of stress. And then after the the river trip, you had blood samples taken, and your initial news was that you know not so much. So so, but then later on you got. Uh, yet another spin on that. So talk about that in terms of the science, you know, your understanding of how the science works and your expectations of how the science would work. And then your, you know, personal experience in terms of where that would send you down the flume of recovery to left, right, center. Okay. Square one. Well, I was really fascinated by the work of um, Stephen Cole at UCLA. He's the immunogeneticist who has spent a lot of time looking at the blood of people who identify as lonely to sort of figure out why they are dying earlier and getting sicker. Um, And when I told him about my divorce, and I had also just recently received an autoimmune disease diagnosis, he said, why don't you come into the lab and we'll look at your blood? We'll see if you have the blood of a lonely person. (laughs) And I thought that was pretty irresistible. Um, So we went and did that. And uh, it was actually a really long time before we we got the blood back. But but we basically set up a sort of um, experiment where we would take blood at regular intervals time away from the marital split and after certain interventions. So I really wanted to look at my blood before the river trip and after the 30 day river trip to see, because I was, I was so invested in the idea that nature was going to heal me, <laughs> that my, my blood after this river trip was going to look fantastic. It was going to be like all shiny and platinum and not lonely anymore. 
Um, so as you can imagine, it was quite disappointing <laughs> to analyze time one and time two together and to see that actually not very much had changed. And my blood was still looking lonely after the river trip, um, which in retrospect, or, or, and well, and really at the time after talking to Stephen Cole made sense because I was literally alone on the river trip. <laughs> so my blood was going to look kind of lonely because I was in a heightened state of vigilance, a heightened state of stress. You know, again, we're not supposed to be alone in the wilderness and feel safe. You know, if we are there, we have to really be paying attention every minute to our surroundings and to not screw up and not get hurt um, and not do something wrong. So, so yeah, so that was disappointing. And then we had to figure out some other interventions. Okay, well, nature didn't work, really. Um, let's find some other things that do and, and look at your blood again. And so that's what we did. What intervention do you think made the biggest difference for you? Having written a book and talked about it and listened to hundreds of hours of audio and put together the audio book. I mean, I would imagine the book, the writing experience <laughs> yeah. itself was possibly the, the best possible cure. You know, that's, that's really perceptive. I think that may be right. Uh, it, it didn't always feel like it at the time because while the reporting and the research was really interesting and, as I say, got me out of the house and talking to, you know, sympathetic scientists who also shared their heartbreak stories with me, which was very validating. That part was really fun. But then I would have to go back and actually write, <laughs> write the painful scenes, you know, write some painful scenes, write some pain. It, it held me in the land of heartbreak, I think, for a long time. And, and, and that did not feel so healing. But when I was done with the book, you know, after I pressed the send button and sent it into my publisher, you know, and of course there would still be revisions after that and so on. But, but, but there was something about the finality of sending it off and being finished with the draft that I kind of felt like I am so sick of heartbreak I just feel done with it. I feel done with the topic and I feel done with my own heartbreak. <laughs> and at that moment, I was like, oh, now I see why this was helpful because I'm done. Yay, I'm done with heartbreak. And uh, now that you're done with heartbreak, where do you think you'll direct your attention next? Oh, good question. Um, so I feel still very, very committed to writing about um, both the healing effects of nature you know, for our psyches, but also on the critical importance to heal nature <laughs> itself, that there's a reciprocity there. You know, our planet is so out of balance. Um, you know, I, I don't want to just extract from nature, you know, to make humans feel better. I think we have to figure out how to also at this point, you know, heal the planet. And so those are the kinds of topics I'm still going to be looking at. The new book by Florence Williams is Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Thank you for joining me, Florence. Thank you, Rick. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.